Mets fans, I want to take a quick break from talking baseball and let you know about the next top prospect in building a smart home. Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is that big time new star prospect. The Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 is a smart lock, a 2K resolution camera, and a doorbell. It's three devices in one, triple the security. You know triples are rare in baseball, but not with Eufy. You can have everything in one device rather than install many pieces on your front door. It's not just for security, but also for convenience. Just the other night, I had tons of packages in the rain. Rather than fumble for my keys, I easily entered my home. This is big since I have four dogs who are impatiently waiting for me at the door. No more concerns about losing keys, and you could assign passwords to your family members. Worried about when your loved ones are getting home? Eufy allows you to see them coming back home via the integrated camera. Hey Mets fans, this is a home run. I had a competitive product before Eufy, and it's the difference between a one-dimensional hitter and a five-tool player. Eufy is that five-tool superstar. Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com to learn more. Already sold? Go to Amazon and get your Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Want to go to the store? Best Buy will have it starting around May 20th. Get complete control over your front door at ease with the Eufy Video Smart Lock E330 today. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit mdgamblinghelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. He's a competitor. He's the best pitcher in our league. Winning the Cy Young last year. Strike three call. Eight in a row for Jacob DeGrom. He threw that one right by deep. Beats him severely. That's not fair. That's 200 strikeouts for the fourth time in five years. Swing and a miss. Strike three. Jacob DeGrom has struck out the side. He has a career high 14 strikeouts. Wow. He has some kind of stuff. Alonso in his first day in the major leagues. The good life. When I was younger, the only thing I wanted was to be a professional baseball player. The good life, to me, would be raking in the big leagues. I've done the math. I know the odds. But I also know that the moment I step into the box is when I feel most like myself. A goofy kid who crushes baseballs. That is the good life. Thank you.
If you don't get fired up listening to that going into today's podcast, I don't know what would fire you up. But anyway, welcome to another edition of the Talking Mets podcast. Of course, I'm your host, Mike Silva. You can check out the show all the time at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Send me a tweet at Mike Silva Media. And the preferred method of listening to this show is Apple Podcasts. Please leave us some feedback and a review. Uh, thanks for tuning in and uh, taking a little bit of a different approach. I know that we're in the midst of the hot stove and after the general manager's meetings, Brody Van Wagenen came out and had a lot to say and I think crystallized what the offseason is going to be or maybe more what it isn't going to be. But the big news to me this week, and and I don't want to say we totally won't get into the rumors, but the big news was the hardware. And it, unfortunately, it wasn't the World Series trophy making the rounds here in New York, but it was the Cy Young Award winning uh, Jacob deGrom and the Rookie of the Year winning Pete Alonso that stole the show here locally. And I thought it'd be cool to really dive into that because it gave me the feeling that we're seeing something historic here in Mets history. And any time that that happens, I like to go to uh, our go-to guy. And that's our buddy Greg Prince from Faith and Fear and Flushing, who I had a chance to catch up with earlier today. Uh, you guys know him. Uh, he's longtime Mets fan, blogger, probably one of the initial blogs that's still around. I think he was around before Mets blog, if I'm not mistaken. So uh, he's been around a long time. And uh, anytime there's a, a chance to see where the Mets are in context of their history, I like to bring Greg on. So you'll hear from Greg in just a couple of minutes. I'll go rapid fire here a little bit on some other topics. But uh, a long conversation with Greg, and I think you're going to enjoy it. And hopefully it takes your mind off of some of the uh, hot stove, which we have plenty of time to do. And a quick look back, I think with this award or these awards, I think it was a chance to get, let us look back at 2019 one last time uh, as we appreciate some of the good stuff that, that happened. And, and that's where I'll start because I was talking to somebody recently uh, who was a Yankees fan, and they had asked me what I thought of the Mets season. I said, you know, it wasn't that bad. And they were like, oh, how can you say that? 86 wins, you know, it was almost they were shocked that I said that. And I said, well, you know, if I based my time being invested in a baseball team as only winning a championship. Well, even as a Yankees fan, I'd be wasting my time more than 75% of the time. And as a matter of fact, I'd have been wasting my time for the better part of the last, you know, 11 years or 10 years. And I don't believe that to be the case because I think baseball, unlike other sports, can allow you outlets of enjoyment with your team because of the nature, and maybe that's where the slowness of the sport allows you to take in an individual performance better than the NFL or the NBA. And I think this year, yes, the story was this team fighting back wild card, but I think the stories of Pete Alonso and Jacob deGrom are really extraordinary. I mean, first with deGrom, if you put this in context of his peers, and I think his peers right now in Mets history are Doc Gooden and Tom Seaver, uh, specifically Gooden, who, who's more of a, of a recent ilk, I had said DeGrom won me over after Game 5 of the 2015 NLDS. I've talked about that before. The way he he battled, kept the Mets in that game, and was able to uh, give them, I believe, six innings. Yeah, six innings. uh, And and come away with a performance where if you had had watched it, you knew knew he had very little to nothing. 
But if you look at the numbers, you're like, wow, that was a, a solid performance on the road in a decisive game. You know, he won me over that night, and I said that was a David Cohn-esque performance. Well, Jacob deGrom is every bit Doc Gooden, and lately in the last couple of years, he's every every bit Tom Seaver. If you compare and you use advanced statistics like wins above replacement and look at DeGrom's career and then take Gooden's 1984 to 1989 and you take DeGrom's 2014 to 2019, DeGrom actually has more win shares, a couple of, a couple of more win shares, but more win shares. And if you look at DeGrom in some ways, yes, he had a spat of injuries there about 2016 and then he got off to the bad start in 2017 after he came back. Uh, from the uh, the nerve uh, injury, uh, he's been a better overall pitcher than Gooden, where Gooden had maybe the fantastic 84-85 and then leveled out, still very good, but continued to decline for a variety of reasons, not just drugs. Uh, DeGrom has been better. That really puts this stretch into context. And the, the impressive part, I think, about the Cy Young this year is that going into the season, I said that he had a lot to live up to. He may never have that kind of season again. Then he signs the contract, and he comes out of spring training with this big contract. There's a ton of pressure on that. And he goes out. He has a little bit of a rough patch early with tipping pitches, but he rebounds. And then he's just as good, if not better, and then ends the season with uh, something like 23 consecutive scoreless innings. So we're seeing an historic pitching performance. Can he continue it? Even if he's three-quarters of what he is now, that's an elite pitcher. And, you know, hopefully for the Mets who have him signed for a few more years, they could continue to see that kind of performance. But I think it's something special, and I think it's something to enjoy. And, uh, you know, this is these are the kind of players that make even seasons when you don't make the playoffs or don't win enjoyable watching and, and, and make you talk about them for years to come. As far as Pete Alonso, look, I, I, all I can say is, is that I've never seen a player go out there set goals, focus, and achieve them with such a high level of uh, accuracy. I mean, you know, he went out there, he set to make the team, and then he wanted to be an elite player and make the All-Star team and win the home run derby and then break the records. Every time there was a challenge in front of him, he met or exceeded it. And he had a couple of rough patches, but not many. And his attitude is one where, and I remember we did the, the piece with Rustin Dodd of The Athletic uh, back in September, and you were just asking yourself, you know, is this, he's got to be a catch here. What's the catch? Not just because you're a Mets fan and you're waiting for the catch, but you're waiting to see what's the catch with him as a human being. And, and just as you heard in that clip, here's a guy that's a big, goofy guy, pure. Maybe there's a, a level of innocence that you hope that he doesn't lose with all the fame and if he continues it up, fortune that will come to him in the next few years. If he's this guy and he's for real, this is a dynamic, special leader. Uh, the likes which we may never have seen ever in Mets history and, and a different type of leader with a lack of airs about him that you know you just don't get with, with elite players. And maybe he's not the perfect player and maybe even though he's trying to become a gold glove first baseman, he may never become that, but he, I think he'll improve. Maybe he'll never hit 50 home runs again. Uh, you know, maybe you'll have to set, settle for 35 homers and 100 RBIs if they de- depress the ball a little bit. Uh, but all I know is is that I think this guy is is a guy that yearns to be in the spotlight, yearns to be a winner, yearns to have fun and and to play on teams that have as much fun as him. And 
you know, the cynic in you says this is going to be Bob Hamlin. You know, if you remember the Kansas City star that won the Rookie of the Year and then fizzled out shortly thereafter. And then the, the optimist in you says, well, every other Rookie of the Year the Mets have had hasn't been a one-and-done or a one-year wonder, even though that maybe not everybody lived up to the ultimate potential, i.e. like, you know, Strawberry and Gooden. They still had very successful careers here. And, and you hope that Pete Alonso does the same. So a fun week. I think both of those guys are special guys that uh, may arguably be the best offensive and pitching combination in the town right now. Better than anybody across town. You could argue that, certainly, and there's a lot of ways you could debate that, but it's fun to have those two guys and and those two guys anchoring which should be a very competitive Mets team in the next few years. Take away all the negativity and the nonsense and talk about payroll and upgrades to the roster it's really fun to have or to be watching these two guys over the course of uh, the last year and hopefully into next year. So we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, Greg Prince, Faith and Fear and Flushing, let's get into that. We're also going to have a special treat. Uh, I've been meaning to do this, but the 20th anniversary of the 1999 Mets uh, is this year. Uh, And and just after the Athletic ran a piece in September, with the oral history of Game 6 of the Atlanta series. I thought maybe it'd be fun to look back briefly on that as well. So we'll get into DeGrom, Pete Alonso, the 99 Mets, and whatever else is on Greg Prince's mind. Greg Prince, Faith and Fear and Flushing, right after this. The Talking Mets podcast is available on many outlets, but the most popular is Apple Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Silva, the host of the Talking Mets podcast, and I encourage you to leave a review about the program on Apple. Just rate it one to five stars, hopefully a five because why wouldn't you? And then if you have time, leave a review. It helps the podcast continue to grow and encourages others to take a listen. You can also email me at MikeSilva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, TalkingMetsPodcast.com. Hope to hear from you soon. And enjoy the rest of the show. We're back and joining me, you guys all know him, Greg Prince from Faith and Fear in Flushing. You can check him out on Twitter at Greg underscore Prince, uh, author of many books. Uh, one of the guys you go to when uh, we want to look at the Mets history and the context of what's going on. And ironically, despite the fact that there's been a lot of negativity around this team over the last six months to a year, there's also a lot of good stuff going on. And this week was a banner week for the team. And and Greg, I'll start there. I, I know that you know, as I was listening to the awards, uh, which were, I don't think there was a lot of drama around them, but you never know what could happen. I was thinking to myself, you know, before I reached out to you, I was like, you know, this is this is a pretty cool week to be a Mets fan. I know it's not the hardware that in today's world that everybody judges teams by, which is the championship. But uh, it's pretty cool to see the Mets get the Rookie of the Year and the Cy Young Award winner, back-to-back Cy Young Award winner. And here I am talking to you, and you pointed this out right before you came on, on Tom Seaver's 75th birthday. So kind of ironic how it all comes together. Yeah, uh, maybe we should name the middle of November after Tom Seaver because uh, he was born November 17th. For that matter, another Cy Young winner, Doc Gooden, was born November 16th. He just turned 55. So uh, maybe uh, you know there's something in the atmosphere that allows uh, the Mets and the BBWA a uh, voting body to kind of come together. But uh, you know these these two awards this year were certainly earned. 
during the six months of the season. Like you said, not a lot of surprise that either Pete Alonso would be named Rookie of the Year or that Jacob deGrom would be named Cy Young for a second consecutive year. But I, I think as Mets fans, we can certainly revel in the fact that we've never had two of these awards in the same year, two of the major ones. And we've never had a back-to-back. Well, you know, well let, let, let me rephrase that. We did have back-to-back rookies of the year, obviously different men. Uh, Daryl Strawberry and Dwight Good in 83 and 84, but we never had somebody win an award as prestigious as the Cy Young two years in a row. So it's, it's, hard to, uh, it's hard to hew to the script, Mike, of where we say, oh, God, the Mets are just so, fill in the adjective of your choice for disappointing or devastating or whatever, because, uh, you know, we got some good news. Certainly have good news. Maybe not on the scoreboard, because we know what happens when Jacob DeGrom pitches sometimes and how the offense goes to sleep. But, uh, you know, we, we had a great pitcher to watch every five days for the last two years, for, for the last six years, really. And we had Pete Alonso making history and, and sending balls into the atmosphere and going where no rookie, let alone no Met, had gone before. So it's certainly nice to get that validation this time of year. Yeah, starting with Alonzo, the thing about him that stood out throughout the year was, uh, and the, it's hard to do this in baseball because the player doesn't control the game. You're you're relying on others. That there's so much out of your control. It's more in the NBA or the NFL. But uh, if they needed a big home run, and it seemed like he willed those home runs, I think back to a, a game in Milwaukee earlier in the year when he he tied it in the ninth inning. Uh, how the the drama around his record tying and record beating home runs late in the year uh, came out. It was almost like that last weekend. You knew he would get the job done, and that's different for a baseball player. Maybe, and and this is where the pessimism for a Mets fan will come up. Is he Bob Hamlin? You know, Bob, uh, Bob Hamlin wins the Rookie of the Year for the Royals back in the '90s and turns out to be a huge bust. Uh, or is he another uh, Daryl Strawberry? You know, I know that things didn't work out exactly the way Mets fans want it, uh, but Strawberry had a, a really, a really good career here. You know, up until 1990, the the, the issues happened after. Uh, that kind of drama, that kind of ability, the home run derby. I mean, that's when it really started to become, for me, real that Pete Alonso was different. That stupid home run derby that means absolutely nothing. I mean, he goes out there and he actually. He wins it, and he, and he went out there to win it, and he did win it, and uh, that's different. That's a different type of player. In some ways, that's even different than what we saw with David Wright or, or, or any of these other former Mets. Uh, let's talk about just offensive players that we've seen come through this team over the course of history. Yeah, I think it's, it's easy to kind of to look for comparisons and precedents, but what we may have here is not another this or another that, but the first Pete Alonso. And if the first year is an indication, you know, we'll be happy to ride that pony (laughs) for as long as uh, he will allow us. I I think you're right about the home run derby. It's it's not something that I had ever really put much stock into, you know, uh, met here and there and entered it over the years. And really the the only image we had from it was David Wright uh, being a runner up in 2006 and then hitting, uh, you know, only a handful of home runs in the second half. So uh, I, I think there was this lingering sense that, you know, don't do it, Pete. It's just going to ruin your swing. But really, he, he took advantage of it. He he warmed to the spotlight in you know, really a perfect way. I mean, he, he wasn't 
shy about it, but he wasn't brash about it either. He he just found that sweet spot, much as he did with his bat. And I I think it was kind of a dress rehearsal for for the second half for him and maybe for the team in its own way. Uh, not not that anybody else from the Mets was participating, but it it felt good to watch a Met win something. In, in a competitive nature, at, at a point where I think we had all given up on the season, I, not even pretty much given up. I know I had no hope coming out of the All-Star break, and you know the Mets began to make noise and, and made something out of the second half, and you know Pete certainly had some help there. So if, if this is the kind of player he is, this is the kind of young man he is, as as we've we've seen in in some of the the off-field. Uh, endeavors he's gone after. Uh, I think we're in pretty good shape. Obviously, you don't know. Uh, you know there is no sophomore of the year award. Uh, there is a sophomore jinx, you know, which is folklore. But it's it's happened. But then again, there have been rookies of the year who, you know, like you said, Daryl Strawberry is one of them. Cal Ripken comes to mind. Uh, I'm sure there are others uh, who aren't Bob Hamlin. Uh, you know, some guys, yeah, peak in their first year. Some guys, uh, it's the start of something big. So um, I'm, I'm going to err on the side of optimism and uh, f- figure that this is a good start for us. Greg Prince, Faith and Fear and Flushing, joining me. Mets got some hardware this week. And, you know, it's easy to talk about what they need to do in the offseason and play GM. And we do a lot of that here. But I think sometimes what we don't do is look back and really enjoy and, you know, before I get to Jacob DeGrom, I'll even give you a little quick story. And I was talking to somebody recently, uh, you know, a Yankees fan. And, uh, you know, they said, what do you think of the Mets season? I said, well, you know, it, it wasn't that bad. And he's like, why? Is that You're happy with 86 wins? And I said to him, I said, look, um, and I said, seriously, I said, I'm not going to argue with you on this. Uh, I, I'm all about, you know, the team should be built and should be striving for a championship and to win. We know that. But if, I get disappointed every time they don't or deem my time invested in the team as a waste. Even if I'm a Yankees fan, 75% of my uh, fandom my or covering the team, whatever, is ended in an utter waste of time and disappointment because the league's been around over 100 years. The Yankees have 27 titles. Like That's a lot of failure. And I don't think he ever thought of that response because he didn't know what to say. And And to me, that's something I think as Mets fans I worry about because I hear what you're saying, and you're right. There was not a lot of hope for the second half, but there's still things in this sport. And I think it's unlike any other sport, and I don't mean this as a narrative. You can enjoy aspects of a bad baseball season or a failing baseball season. Now, certainly the second half made things much better. But I have a feeling Pete Alonso and Jacob DeGrom, even if the Mets finished with 76 wins, would have still allowed us to enjoy uh, what was a very frustrating season at certain points. And, uh, you know, I think that that's something that we can't lose. And I, I, I fear sometimes that we're going to lose that in the sea of what has become uh, a ton of negativity around the team. Yeah, well, you know, there's a definitely a difference when you win something and you don't win something. But there's also a difference between when you're competing and contending for something and you're not. And, and then there's a difference between you're not contending, but there are some nice individual stories going on. And, you know, there's, there's nothing. And, and we've actually been kind of lucky in this decade in the seasons where the Mets haven't gone anywhere. I mean, really haven't gone anywhere. 
there's usually something going on with a player, whether it was Jose Reyes winning a batting title, R.A. Dickey winning 20 and his own Cy Young, uh, Matt Harvey taking the league by storm, starting the All-Star game of the year. He did all, all in lousy years for the Mets. Uh, Jacob deGrom winning Rookie of the Year, another not-so-great year. And then, you know, certainly 2018 is the gold standard for that, where Jacob deGrom was, you know, as dominant a starting pitcher as could be, and the Mets were as depressing as could be, you know, within reason, because we know that they can be even more depressing. But you do have to kind of, I think, if you're going to live with a team for six months, and and even for 12 months, the way some of us are, uh, you have to take your victories where you can. And you have to be able to compartmentalize. So if you just walk around saying, we're not going to make the playoffs, what's the point? Woe is me. We're not going to win the world championship, but we made the playoffs. Woe is me. It's it's just not going to be any fun whatsoever. And you're not going to get any enjoyment out of it. So when you get seasons like this one, you know, punctuated by these two great individual performances, but also – by a team that, that gave you a reason to look at the standings every day for the last couple of months of the season and to worry about what you know, six other teams were doing because it affected your team's standing and you know, just the excitement of the way this team played and didn't give up and all those cliches. Honestly, I mean, I, I don't see how the, the overwhelming vibe or the overarching vibe could be negative. I mean, in other years, absolutely. I mean, 2017, uh, Terry Collins' last year was, was a tremendous bummer. 2018, the, the way that year got away after a fast start was, was almost as bad. They, they, had, they rallied a little in the second half, but it didn't much matter. This year was a completely different feeling, right down to the, the last swing of the last day. And, yeah, it, it's too bad that it ended on September 29th and the Mets had to go home and, and couldn't play in a – one more game and then take it from there the way the Nationals did. But, you know, I, I think at the very least it was it was a fun place to live for for a few months. And hopefully it's it's a a platform for better things uh, to come. But that's to come. We just don't know. Yep. No, and, and I and I ha- like I said, I don't have as much experience following this team as you do, but I can tell you going back to the eighties 90s turn of the century you know i'm talking about almost 30 years of this team i I don't know why people seem to think that i'm being overly optimistic just the way this team was last year and i know they're going to have a new manager and and all that stuff there was just something about them like even that last game they had no reason to want to do anything but go home on that sunday and the way they battled back the way that they took uh, joy in that win with Dom Smith hitting the home run, it's different. I, I got to tell you, it was just surprising to me because you don't normally see that with a group of people, with a group of players, no matter how long they've been together or short they've been together or how much they need to prove. That last day is your bags are packed, your foot's out the door, let's get this thing over with in uh, a buck 50 and go home, which in a lot of ways you can't blame them. I mean, they, they've been on the road and – they got families too. F- fans forget that. Forget the money. Uh, it was different, and it makes you wonder. I mean, have you seen anything like that? Did Did you see that in '85? Did you see that in '84? You know, I don't remember seeing that in '97 or '98 or '96 before they got better. And maybe it means absolutely nothing, but to me, there's a value in that, and there's a difference in that. 
and this whole culture thing makes me makes me believe it has to part of that has to be the two guys that won some hardware but part of that might be you know things aren't as bad as as we think and there's a really good group of guys and those that have covered the team that know these guys much better than I do tell me that all the time yeah I think that you know if, if a team is especially if a team is on the rise I, I think you get the sense that they they don't want to go home I, and you know that, that the last day of this season, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of a, a connoisseur of what I like to call closing day. Uh, you know, the uh, pol- the polar, no, no, no pun intended. Uh, yeah, don't you for, go to those uh, games usually? Yeah, I've gone, I've gone to the last. Like to go to? I've gone to the last 25 in a row, and a, and a couple before that. Um, so I've seen a lot of these. And I have seen some some really nice moments. Not, you mentioned 97. Actually, 97 was a. I mean, the, the Mets pummeled the Braves, and it was one of those years where the Braves were going to the playoffs as usual. But the fans were so elevated by the fact that that team had competed from out of nowhere that there was just this big standing ovation when it was all over, and they played one of you know a video uh, full of highlights, and then the players came out and tipped their caps, and it was a nice moment. You get you, like that in '85 uh, to a certain degree because they had come up one game shy, but it was, it was such a you know, passionate season. Uh, you know, some years, you know, it's just, hi, thanks for coming by. Uh, this year, what I loved about that game, and, well, there, there are several things I loved about that game, but I'll, I'll just stick to two of them. One, we, we were all waiting for the first baseman to hit the dramatic home run that would win the game, and, and that's what we got, except the first baseman was Dom Smith, who we didn't right. even realize you know, was going to play that day. And, and, and by the way, I think that's a nice advertisement for the expanded rosters we're no longer going to have, because if you weren't expanding rosters the way they have in September, you know, Dom Smith isn't suddenly activated on the last weekend, but that's neither sure. here nor there. The, the other thing, if, if you watch the highlights, which I – will confess to have watched it, having watched that home run several times since the end of the year. Watch the scene around home plate. You see every Met available is there to greet Dom Smith. And you see guys like Edwin Diaz and Jerry's Familia who have every right to just want to go into the clubhouse and get the high sign to, to get in the car and go to the airport to sulk. And, and they, like everybody else, who's played that day and that those guys hadn't, and they had, they had this, the, the worst years, you know, in terms of everything that, that went wrong as, as a team that was trying to win games, and, and those two guys were as responsible as anybody for letting the leads get away. They were as happy as anybody for Dom Smith and happy as anybody for the Mets. And, and this team just had a certain, you know, I, I realize it, 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 it's sort of a corny word, a certain chemistry to it, a certain – uh, karma is probably not the right word, but but there was a, just a critical mass of pro- probably you know stemming from you know the the youthful core of the team, the Alonzos, the McNeils, and the Smiths, and the Confortos, and so forth. But everybody, the Todd Frazier's, the Juan Lagares's, uh, even Robinson Cano, who who nobody was really you know welcoming uh, with open arms, uh, g- given the deal it took to get him here. So you know these guys lived together for six months, and and yeah, that that could wear on them to a point where they don't want to look at each other anymore. But in this case, you know, they went, they went through it all together. They, they came back together. They came close together. They fell short together. And at the end, you know, that they were excited together and we were excited for them. I I tell you, Mike, I've been to 276 games at City Field in regular season play, not, not, not 
counting the postseason games. I, I never experienced anything. I wasn't at the no-hitter, unfortunately, but but uh, I never experienced anything like that last day. I was excited for days thereafter. It didn't even bother me we weren't in the playoffs. You know, eventually it did. But, um, again, I, I can't say what, what that portends. Maybe next year it's uh, we, we get our hopes up and they're dashed. But it was a hell of a note to end on, and I, I think it was indicative of, of a really great group and, you know, uh, a, a Perfectly good culture and all those things, and I hope it's something they they build on rather rather than uh, somehow find a way to uh, tear apart. Uh, great point, and that's why it drives me crazy when I see people say, "Well, trade Brandon Nimmo for this," and and JD like it's it's fantasy baseball, and and I think you got to be careful about doing that. Greg Prince joining me, Faith and Fear in Flushing, uh, long time blog, probably. One of the few legacy blogs left out there. I mean, Greg was doing this, I think, before Mets blog. And uh, talking about Mets history, Jacob deGrom, we mentioned it before. Uh, For me, when, you know, Jacob deGrom is this no-name prospect that comes up and supposed to be filler or maybe profiles as a reliever. When Jacob deGrom won me over was game five of the NLDS uh, against the Dodgers in 2015. Uh, That game he won me over because he had so much moxie. He reminded me of David Cohn. Uh, in a lot of ways, that game, just how David used to grind out, whether it be with the Mets or the Yankees, when he didn't have his best stuff to give you a great outing. Maybe like David Cohn in that uh, that famous game in Atlanta uh, when he was a member of the Yankees. Uh, and since then, it's just gotten better and better for him. And, and I, I think I shortchanged him. I mean, I used to say, well, he's like David Cohn. That's the kind of career he's going to have. Well, let me put this in context, uh, Greg, and I want to get your take on this. Uh, and, and advanced stats, whether you like them, dislike them, whether you agree with how they're calculated or not, they're calculated with a formula that puts everybody on the same playing field. So great players are going to probably show up great, no matter what you do, with a baseball reference win above replacement or fan graphs or whatever. Uh, Jacob deGrom, through the same, you know, if you look at Doc Gooden from 84 to 89 and Jacob deGrom from 2014 to 2019, uh, Jacob DeGrom is actually slightly better in win shares than Doc Gooden. Now, he's not at Seaver level with the same period of time, but he's better than Dwight Gooden. So think about that. Advanced stats are telling uh, you, Greg, and telling me, well, here's what your eyes see. You see Jacob DeGrom. Uh, obviously, the Mets haven't had the run that the 80s Mets had and the buzz that the 80s Mets had, had uh, back then. Uh, but he's better than Doc Gooden, according to advanced stats. Does that surprise you? Uh, you know, when you think of Doc Gooden, you think of him at his absolute peak in 85 and to a certain extent, 84. And then you think of a very good pitcher who was never quite, and again, kill me for this pun, good enough, you know, from, from 86 on. But really, until he encountered a second injury in 91, was as good as anybody in the National League over that period. So to be able to compare. Jacob DeGrom with even post-vintage Dwight Gooden, even vintage Dwight Gooden, uh, you know, different style of pitching maybe. Uh, it's a great comp. You know what? It's a great compliment for DeGrom, but it's it's a pretty good compliment for Gooden at this point because we've seen what Jacob DeGrom can do and how he keeps this team in games, game after game. And, you know, except for, I don't know, three or four starts early in the year where perhaps he was tipping his pitches, perhaps he – needed to make an, an adjustment otherwise. You know, he, he doesn't have bad games. 
He had, I, I think, like back-to-back really horrific starts in 2017 or in late May, and since then has been well, mostly untouchable. We we saw him be completely untouchable in 2018, and we saw him you know overcome adversity this year. Kind of the game five of the 2015 NLDS writ large over the course of several months. And you know, if you think back to to that series. Not only did he he keep them in that game, did he, you know, you, you could argue literally change the course of Mets history because if, if Terry Collins does what so many managers are prone to do in the postseason, which is yank their starter in the for the first sign of trouble, who who knows what happens in the second inning? But he just kept the Dodgers off the board, and he does it to bracket a playoff performance in that series where he was you know, he, he was good and level, cone level dominant in the first game. Uh, so there were two very different starts, but they both wound up being just as effective. So I, I think what, what DeGrom did this year from the perspective of Mets history is to indisputably catapult himself into that discussion where you know, for years we would say Seaver and Gooden and Kuzman and then, you know, might throw in some other names of really good pitchers to talk about the depth of med pitching over the years. I think now we say, depend, you know, and, and, and you can quibble with, with the order, but just to kind of go from, from where we've been, Seaver and Gooden and Kuzman and DeGrom and then kind of everybody else. And, and the great news here is that DeGrom is, still, is the one uh, who's still pitching, who is under contract for several more years, who has not fallen off. Uh, you know, I, I think there there was always a reason to be nervous when you sign somebody to a, a large extension. We certainly see, you know, the, the two largest position player contracts the Mets have given out in the last 10 years not work out, no matter how much we wanted David Wright to stay a Met forever, and we wanted Yoan Cespedes to stay a Met for as long as he could. Those contracts did not work out. And, you know, we don't know what's going to happen over the next few years, but Jacob deGrom, if, if you couldn't sign Jacob deGrom to a contract extension, you can't sign anybody to a contract extension at that stage of a career. And for year one, you can't complain at all about what you got, and you can only look forward to a guy who you hope, because he started a little later, because he wasn't that super top prospect, uh, you know, because, you know, he had the Tommy John surgery very early in his career and seems to have plenty of miles left that you're going to keep getting, you know, Jacob DeGrom for several more years. Yeah, I don't think fans realize that what you're seeing out of DeGrom is, at least in the last two seasons, is what uh, fans saw in Seaver in 1969 and 1973. Uh, that's what you're seeing, and these are rare. And, and Jacob actually brought it up. I don't know if you heard his his uh, acceptance on MLB Network. Exactly what I was concerned about. Signs the you know wins the signing award, comes back to spring training with expectations, uh, has the uh, big contract signed right before opening day. That's a lot thrown at somebody. And I think I, I talked to a former player once, and he says, you have no idea those contracts. You know, not the fans want to feel bad for anybody making $30 million a year, but that changes a lot. That, that you have to walk in that clubhouse, and now you're higher, highest paid, and people are looking at you and expecting things that 
you know, maybe they didn't, they, maybe they expected before, but were more tolerant of not hitting the threshold. Now he's got to hit that threshold and he came back and yeah, he had that stretch where things weren't good, but he met it in, in a lot of cases late in the year, exceeded it from the year before with 23 innings or so scoreless. So, you know, that's, that, that's different. And, um, you know, I don't know what the next three, four, five years brings, but if this is what you're going to get, especially since he started later, you know, you might have Tom Seaver. And from a support standpoint, you may have Tom Seaver of 71, 72, 73, 74, where you wonder, you know, could that player with the better offense won, you know, Seaver win 18 games, 20 games, maybe Seaver wins 25 to 27 or more, right? So it's interesting how he embodies a lot of what you probably have seen in Mets history from other great pitchers, namely Seaver. Yeah, and you know, I, I'm glad that. Well, while I'm I'm sorry that they don't score more for him and don't always make the plays for him, and uh, you know he doesn't have those win totals, and and that the game is designed that nobody expects anybody to go more than seven innings in a given start most of the time. That at the same time, it's understood what he's doing, and that we're not sitting here saying. The writers didn't appreciate what Jacob DeGrom did because, you know, he only had 10 wins or he only had 11 wins. I mean, it's, it's a different universe from Seaver's career where it, when he won the Cy Young in 1973, it was historic because he only had 19 wins. <laughs> and to that point, no starting pitcher had won a Cy Young with less than 20 wins. And there was one pitcher that year fairly ordinary pitcher, had a pretty good year named Ron Bryant, who had 24 for the Giants. But there was no question that Seaver was the best pitcher in the league, except that the Mets, even en route to a pennant, uh, hadn't scored for him, which was, you know, a, a a song that was played over and over. And even if you've lived as a Mets fan since then, you've you've recognized that, you know, except for one year where, where he was incredibly well-supported, that Gooden lost wins that he could have had, that Pedro Martinez during, you know, when he was still Pedro Martinez as a Met, had outings like that, that, that decisions that he didn't get. Johan Santana had that experience. Matt Harvey, when Matt Harvey was at, was at his peak, only had nine wins and certainly deserved more that year. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I'm glad that we've reached a point where that is not considered the be-all and end-all because it doesn't begin to describe just how magnificent Jacob has been, and you know, Seaver had his problems too now and then. He he went through rough stretches, but the greats figure it out. They overcome it. You know, what, what one little detail that might have gotten lost in 2019 versus 2018 was when he won in 2018, when he won the Cy Young, he had a personal catcher <laughs> in, in in all but uh, you know name. Devin Mezzarocco was the guy who caught Jacob Degrom. Uh, except for a couple of outings in late August, September, where he was hurt. And as soon as he was ready to come back, the only guy he caught was Jacob DeGrom because he wasn't really healthy. This year, he lost his personal catcher. They they did not make any kind of effort to keep Devin Mezzarocco around. That was a point of some contention with Mezzarocco, certainly, who wound up retiring. And we saw, not 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 to you know cast anybody else in a lesser light, but we, we saw Syndergaard you know, have problems pitching to Wilson Ramos and wanting to pitch to Rene Rivera 
or Tomas Nito instead. And DeGrom may have had his preferences too. And, you know, you could certainly take issue with Ramos's defense and what, what, what that equaled versus his really terrific offense in the second half. But you know what? DeGrom pitched to whoever he put behind the plate, eventually found his rhythm, and it didn't matter. You know, he made everybody better. You know, he wasn't looking for the catcher to make him better. He made the catcher better. He made, you know, his entire team better. He couldn't swing the bat for, for them. But, uh, you know, I, I think back to to one of the uh, his starts I went to that uh, that weekend where they wore those awful uh, white uniforms versus the Braves and their awful black uniforms where every team was doing that uh, players weekend stuff. And I think Jake, I want to say, struck out 13 in seven innings, and he hit he hit a home run for the only run sure. he got, and they ended up losing in extras. And you know that unfortunately was the you know the perfect Degrom start. He does everything, and the Mets do not succeed. But uh, you know, as we saw in 2015, sometimes the Mets do succeed with him pitching. And uh, you know, just to, to bring it back to what we were talking about before, hopefully we get that whole puzzle together in 2020, and you know get this guy to a point where, uh, you know, he's he's got the wins to show for it and the team has got the wins to show for it. Before we uh, let Greg go and wrap up, we're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, uh, the 1999 Mets, it's 20 years, and you're not going to have any celebration at City Field for that. But earlier in the year, Tim Britton over the Athletic uh, did an oral history, and it came to my mind. And at one point I wanted to do a show about it, but with so much going on, uh, around the Mets with managers changes and whatnot. It's hard to kind of jam it all in. So let's take a quick break. When we come back, Greg and I will reminisce about the 99 Mets and wrap up. Uh, you're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. Right, Greg Prince joining me, Faith and Fear in Flushing. You guys uh, know the website. Uh, Greg, before we wrap up and go, you know, we've had such a great conversation here and, and got deeper into maybe the DeGrom and Alonzo things than we planned. But uh, 20 years ago, one of the more fun teams in Mets history made a run. And I don't know if you saw the piece. I don't know if you're a subscriber to The Athletic, but uh, Tim Britton back in October it was about the Grand Slam single, his oral history, but made me think of that season. And I've had you on before, and I know when we talk about, you know, former Mets seasons, and now Jerry Kuzman's number is going to be retired. And I feel like the Mets are going to try, especially with Jay Horowitz, who's actually got a book coming out. I don't know if you know Jay has a book coming out, but Jay oh, Horowitz uh, running yeah. the alumni. Yeah, Jay Horowitz is running the alumni department. I think you're going to see more of a celebration, and it goes back to what I said earlier, of achievements and seasons that did not lead to the ultimate goal. And I was wondering if you read that piece and if you had thought, you know, when it came to your mind that we're 20 years after that wild season and crazy ending uh, that really was, and I had Piazza on earlier this year. It's almost like a, 
one season, 99 to 2000. I feel like they were together. Maybe you could even say 97 to 2000 or 98 to 2000 is one season. But uh, I was wondering if you had any uh, feelings on that and if that came to mind throughout this this crazy season that we just saw and with, uh, you know, with what we've been talking about. Yeah, I, I did read that article. Uh, I do subscribe to The Athletic. It's a uh, t- t- terrific uh, outlet. I'm, I'm glad it exists. Uh, that article struck me for a number of reasons, one of which was the enthusiasm for the players or from the players from that era. Still, you know, the light in it, that it wasn't one of those things that happened and then was forgotten about. I, I think that speaks to the kind of season and postseason those guys put together. Uh, you know, you, you talk about a, a special group of players, uh, you know, a, a, a cer- certainly a different composition than what we were talking about in 2019. Uh, you know, a more veteran outfit uh, and some guys who <clears throat> came in from, from other places to kind of bring bring their own mojo, if you will. Uh, you know, and, and, you know, some homegrown stars and, uh, you know, a couple of future Hall of Famers uh, in their prime, or you know, one certainly in his prime, one on the uh, the backside of his prime. Uh, just a, a tremendous collection and an incredibly fascinating manager <laughs> whose likes we may never see again in in a Mets dugout or or any dugout. And I think for for the fans, uh, certainly the fans who were around then, certainly the fans. And and this isn't me, but certainly for the fans who weren't around for 69, 73, and 86, uh, you know, it really is something to, to hang hang the old Mets hat on uh, because they, they did everything but win the World Series and, you know, go to the World Series. And it, it almost, almost didn't matter. You might not have thought that at the moment Kenny Rogers throws his last ball for and, and the season ends heartbreakingly in Atlanta where so many things ended heartbreakingly in those days. But you know, it, it was such a magical, ridiculous team to, to live with for what became seven months that, you know, once you got a little bit of distance from the final result, you kind of felt you won everything there that needed to be won. You know, I, I think back to, to a, uh, a thing I wrote a few years ago. It was before 2015 and 2016, so it only took into account, you know, the the years where the Mets went to the playoffs but didn't win the World Series. So we're talking 73, 88, 99, 2000, 2006 at the time. And and the exercise was, you know, I, I described each each of you know what they came close, to, how they came close to winning, what they could have won, what it would have taken. If you could take the the point was if you could take any one Met season where they went to the postseason and, and magically turn it in to the third world championship in Mets history with the understanding that 69 and 86 are still 69 and 86, that, that those are not altered whatsoever. But if you could get one more world championship out of one of the other playoff years, which would it be? And we, we got some terrific answers. A lot of thoughtful scenarios were woven. Great cases were made for every year. And what I came away thinking was, as much as I love 1999, and it's probably in my now 51 seasons, going back to 69 as a fan, my favorite season uh, as a Mets fan, you know, of course I would have loved it. They'd beaten the Braves in Game 6, beaten Tom Glavin in Game 7, and beaten the Yankees in the Subway Series. But that wasn't the one I would say, oh, if only that they had won that one. 
Because, like, how could it be any better in, in, in the rearview mirror? How could you have a, a better experience than really that final month of first, you know, going down the way they did when, when, when the division title was right in front of them and, you know, losing three in a row in Atlanta, losing three in a row in Philadelphia, getting their 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 hearts stomped when they came back to Shea, and then that that crazy inning against Maddox where they had like eight singles in a row and Olerud hits a grand slam and another heartbreaking loss the next night and then that whole weekend against Pittsburgh and then the game at Cincinnati and then, you know, the Arizona series and the way that ended with Todd Pratt and then, you know, culminating in the Atlanta series, which was, again, another let's get ourselves in the hole and then the grand slam single game, which is, you know, its own oral history, like you said, and then the game that came after, which, is, as much as it pains me to admit, is probably my favorite Mets game ever, and they lost. <laughs> really, may, maybe with the, the the possible exception of Game Six of the 2011 World Series, the one where the Cardinals came back on the Rangers, where I didn't have a particular rooting interest. I think it was the greatest game I ever saw. Um, and again, my team lost in heartbreaking fashion. I was miserable. I I called in sick for for work the next day because I, I just couldn't deal with it. But it was just such an incredible ride to be on that year. And just the personalities were were so large and they meshed so well. And, you know, the 2000 team will probably get some kind of acknowledgement in 2020. They certainly deserve it. They went to the World Series. It it is a national independent. We should all be proud of. We should remember what the Giants series and the Cardinals series was like. You know, the the 10-run inning in the middle of that year, there were a lot of terrific moments, terrific players, terrific memories. But it just wasn't the same. I think that that was in Tim Britton's article, and I think you ask any Mets fan, I've had these discussions you know, for 20 years, that, yeah, 2000 was great, and um, we're glad we, we got to the World Series, even though we didn't win it and, we, and who we lost it to. But, man, 99, that was, that was something else. And, you know, I've often said, when, when you look out onto the, the left field um, facade, if you will, of... Uh, the uh, Excelsior level where they have the banners hanging for each of the postseason teams that the Mets had. And, you know, most of them are easily understood, you know, 1969 world champions, 1973 national league champions and so on for 1999. They kind of have to cram their bona fides on there where it says, you know, a wild card and NLDS winner, which is absolutely accurate, but it could just say, I used to say it could just say 1999 best drama and that would cover it. But really? <laughs> You know, you could just say you could just say 1999, and we all would get it. So um, it was a one of a kind year, and you know, it's it's a shame that there there isn't exactly a mechanism for celebrating that. And I certainly understand the emphasis on the 50th anniversary of 1969 this year, and you know, I'm I'm thrilled they went as far as they did to do that. It was a great weekend when all those guys who could make it were here. But, um, you know, I, I would find a way, uh, you know, as long as Jay Harwitz is on the job and he has everybody's phone number, uh, love, love to get, uh, you know, Oral Hershiser and John Olerud and Ricky Henderson and Melvin Mora, in addition to, you know, the guys who were still here in 2000 uh, come playoff time. Um, I, I think that's – I, I think that's almost the people's champion, if you will. That's uh, a good you know, way of putting it. They'll, they'll never be listed as, you know, the world champions, the pennant winners. It, it, it is a different tier when you think about it, and, and rightly so. But 
99 is kind of the people's champion among Mets fans, and I, I don't think we'll, we'll ever forget, uh, you know, I, I, I'm maybe it's just the, the temperature where I'm sitting right now, but I, I'm getting chills just thinking about it. So uh, so it's always fun to to, uh, to think about that team, and, I'm you know, they have, they have a milestone anniversary too. So uh, here's to the 99 team. Best offensive team runs uh, scored in Mets history, better than 86, 87, 2006. Uh, what's interesting, Greg, as I'm listening to you talk, I'm thinking back to that season, a couple of things before we wrap up here. Um, number one, that season encompasses so many different seasons within it. You have the early season when they struggle, then the turning point, which is the Yankee Stadium, uh, you know, uh, coaches being fired. And at that point, you're on the precipice where are you ready to – there's a point as a fan, as you talked about earlier with the Alonzo and the home run derby, where you're ready to kind of, you'll watch, you'll enjoy, but you're ready to kind of put it aside and, and not get upset as much as you normally would in a season where there's a lot of skin in the game. And that night after they lost, and then the following night against the Yankees, you were, you may, you know, many were, may have been at that point because they're under 500 and, and what have you. So you have that. Then you have the summer right after that game where they beat Clemens and whatnot where they're as good, if not better, as the 86 team. I mean, they're they're rolling. They're the best team in baseball. They're better than the Braves. And then you have the end, which is the September uh, part, where it resembles 98, where they struggle down the stretch. You're like, oh, no, this isn't going to happen again, or 97. And you're wondering, you know, does this team play too tight under Bobby Valentine? Uh, that was that thing, even in 2000, as they got into the September, where you know, the media was like, you know, the Mets, can they finish it off? Are they going to choke? And then you have the wild ride uh, of the playoffs, which starts with the Pittsburgh uh, homestand and doesn't end until that final ball four by Kenny Rogers, who, by the way, Kenny Rogers gets a lot of grief, but without Kenny Rogers, Mets don't make the playoffs. So it's interesting all that encompasses that season. And I'm curious, taking away the obvious, the Grand Slam single, uh, I want to know if you have a personal favorite game or memory, and then I'll give you mine. Uh, from that wild and, and that compilation I just gave you, which is really three seasons in one, four seasons. Yeah, in one yeah you, you could do a lot of micro seasons on 1999. Uh, I'll try to keep it brief, but the, the th- there's three that, that always occur to me. The, the, uh, the Kurt Schilling game in May when they were, Getting to a level where you knew they could be good. Got to, got to keep in mind that how how '98 ended, which I think is kind of lost to history, and especially later collapses. And that was heartbreaking. That was five losses in a row with the wild card in hand and not making the playoffs for ten years. Uh, so you know there was an urgency behind the '99 team, the way they they built that team. So you know they actually got off to a pretty good start before they had a sort of in, an in-season collapse to go with all the others. Uh, but, you know, late May, they're down 4 nothing in uh, on a Sunday afternoon, a dreary Sunday, rain-delayed game. And, you know, Schilling is at the top of his game, and the Mets just keep coming. And they end up winning 5-4, to four, and uh, Terry Francona left Schilling in the entire time, and John Olerud uh, had the winning hit, and I believe it was Roger Cedeno. He, he crosses the plate under Mike Lieberthal's tag, and it's sort of punching the air, and I think that that was the the day where I decided these are the 1999 Mets where that meant something. Uh, the second game, very briefly, the Matt Franco game. I don't think I have to elaborate on what that was, but it was yeah, you know, a, a nine eight win at the expense of the Yankees, where they hit six home runs and Piazza hit one. That was probably longer than all six of those combined. Um, it was in, I was at, at up in the upper deck uh, section 36 row T 
that day. It was about 65-35 Mets fans, but obviously Yankee fans make a lot of noise in a situation like that, and the the back and forth, and and that feeling of of, of emancipation and delivery and liberation, and, and you know, hot damn, we we just won ourselves the Subway Series because we'd won the night before, and also dramatic fashion, um, although nothing could be more dramatic than Matt Franco driving in two runs off Mariano Rivera uh, in the bottom of the ninth inning. Uh, so, you know, that, I, I think games like those made me, you know, for all the, like, little snags along the way, you just kind of look back at the Schilling game, the Franco game, and said, you know what, you know, we're, we can't be this bad. <laughs> Things would, would go wrong. And finally, I mean, my I mentioned game six is kind of the best game I, I ever saw, but my favorite game, certainly the favorite game I've ever been to, um, game 162, uh, Melvin Mora on third base, scoring on that wild pitch while Piazza stepped aside in a bit of a daze, uh, will we'll always, you know, will always live with me. And yeah, I, I think just what, what that was just the moment, because even though they hadn't clinched anything, we were all ready to celebrate. And we all kind of, you know, a, a nation turned its lonely eyes to John Franco, who had never been to the playoffs, and he still wasn't in the playoffs. And yet, you know, it felt like we had done something, and there was no way we weren't going to be playing at least a one-game playoff the next day. And and you knew in your heart, after after so much, you know, had gone wrong, where, where you were sure that nothing could go right, you, said, you knew in your heart that, like, they are going finally. And which, of course, you know, set the stage for everything that came with Arizona and Atlanta. Yeah, for me, real quick, uh, I was in the upper deck uh, early season, uh, ninth inning against Trevor Hoffman, single by Olrud, and the next, I think it was the next pitch, home run opposite field to uh, to win the game by Piazza against a closer that was not giving up many. And uh, seeing that ball, as soon as it hit the bat, you knew it was gone. And and you can't, when you're in the upper deck, upper deck in right field, you couldn't see in certain spots, uh, the, the fence, so you had to kind of go by the reaction of the, of the batter. That was another fun one that always stands out to me. That's April. I mean, that was really early in yeah. the season. So, so you have that Greg, uh, it's been so much fun. I went, you know, good conversation goes long and I don't mind that. Neither, neither do the listeners, uh, obviously faith and fear and flushing. Do you have anything else you want to uh, let them know about coming up at Greg underscore Prince, uh, what do you got coming up uh, as we got into the off season? Anything fun you want to share? Uh, probably in the days ahead, we, we do a feature every year called the Nikon camera player of the year, which is kind of the storyline of the year. Uh, that'll probably be up in the next week or so. going to do some, uh, some, some Mets of the 2010s content. So we're, we're ending a decade. Going to look back on some of the, the players and the games that kind of defined these years for us. And, uh, Again, you mentioned at the outset, uh, hopefully something tonight, by tonight, uh, uh, happy 75th birthday to Tom Seaver, um, guy who I think we're all, we're all thrilled is still with us, uh, but, you know, we, we miss him. And, uh, you know, we, we can only wish him well in, in uh, the situation he and his family are in. So uh, he's the guy who uh, made me a Mets fan 50 years ago. So, you know, we'll, we'll keep writing and appreciate everybody who keeps reading. Thanks, Reg. Appreciate the time. Be well, and uh, happy Thanksgiving. Happy early Thanksgiving. Take care, my friend. Thank you, Mike. That's uh, Greg, Greg, Greg Prince, Faith in Fear and Flushing. Good stuff. Hey, let's uh, take another break. When we come back, final thoughts. You're listening to the Talking Mets podcast. We'll be back with more right after this. We break down all the latest Mets news here on the Talking Mets podcast, like when longtime journalist and author of Inside the Empire, 
Bob Clappish discussed his thoughts on the Mets hiring of Carlos Beltran as their manager. The arc of his career pretty much brings everybody into the fold, and I think that makes him so relatable. And I think he was able to probably to impress that upon the Wilpons that you need a manager now who connects with his players. Uh, and I just don't think Callaway ever did. He just didn't belong in this market. He was in over his head from the beginning. It's a completely different vibe that you get from Beltran, who exudes competence and knowledge and confidence uh, that he knows what he's doing, that he was that way as a player, too. I mean, I saw him at the end of his career with the Yankees, and I wouldn't put him at the Jeter level of captainship, leadership, but he's pretty close. He was almost revered in there. I would say maybe in the, in, in the same vein that C.C. Sabathia was. People just loved the guy. Players just were drawn to him for experience, for conversation, for whatever it was. Beltran was the guy. It wasn't just Spanish-speaking guys. It was the American players, too. So I think that will translate very well as manager. Now, the hard part comes after the first three-game losing streak because two things are going to happen. Jeff Wilpon is going to start demanding answers, which will evolve into, which will devolve into second guessing, and the questions on live TV. Uh, you have to do those interviews on live TV on SNY twice a day, and it's not easy to do when the questions come at you and you're being second guessed, uh, and you have to defend your decisions. Some of which didn't come from you; it came from the analytics department or, for, or from Brody. It remains to be seen whether or not Beltran can handle that heat. It's not an easy part of the job. It's one of the elements. I thought that cost Callaway his position. He just was not good under pressure on live television with his cameras in his face. Listen to this and more at www.talkingmetspodcast.com. You know, one other thing about Jacob deGrom that maybe I don't really didn't make the point yet, but the elite company that the back-to-back Cy Young Awards puts him in. I'm looking at the list here. Sandy Koufax, Denny McLean, Jim Palmer, Greg Maddox, Pedro Martinez, Roger Clemens, who did it twice, Randy Johnson, Tim Lincecum, Clayton Kershaw. I mean, out of all of them, maybe Lincecum is the only one that fizzled out a little bit. I mean, he 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 definitely... He definitely wasn't the same pitcher after his back-to-back Cy Youngs. Uh, But all those other guys are elite pitchers, had great careers, Hall of Famers on this list. It's just, it's amazing. Max Scherzer, should I say, he will be Hall of Famer. uh, And has been, I mean, that's what you want DeGrom to be. Because even when he hasn't won the Cy Young Award, Scherzer has been elite. I mean, a real elite pitcher. And a guy that, if you have a game to win, he's one of those guys you just hand the ball and say, you know, bring me to the promised land. So... Good stuff, good stuff from Greg Prince. Long conversation. Hope you enjoyed it. Anytime uh, we get a chance to get Greg Prince or one of these uh, luminaries from the blogosphere, these longtime luminaries, I call them, I always enjoy it. And I've always appreciated their support and what I've done over the years um, because I feel what I do complements well what they do. And in this day and age, when so many people look at their work or their project as a competition and they have to hold it and keep people away and have a proprietary advantage, which is just so silly. And you're seeing some of that now with the podcasting world a little bit. Uh, it just is nice to see that we all could could share our work, get along, and and add to the enjoyment of you, the listener. And, and it, definitely, uh, it definitely makes me happy that all these years, Greg and I could continue to uh, work with each other and, and work with each other in a way that every time I walk away, I think that we have a, uh, a solid product 
that we put out there to to you, the listener. So I want to thank Greg uh, for tuning in uh, and coming in and joining us and, and sharing uh, over 40 minutes of his time on a on a Sunday here uh, during hot stove season. Hey, if, if you had a chance, one of the other topics, and I know that you're probably saying, Mike, you know, get to the hot stove and get to the GM meetings. We're already an hour into this, so I'm not going to get deep into that. I, I think we're going to reserve that for next week. Let's see what the week brings. Uh, I think it's pretty clear. Like I said last week, if you listen to last week's podcast, that Zach Wheeler is going to be that domino, whether they sign him or not, that I, I think will determine a lot of what they do with the rest of the winter. So I don't think much will happen before this whole Zach Wheeler thing comes to a head and gets figured out. And I was on 77, 77 WABC yesterday. If you haven't had a chance to listen to that, that is on the Apple Apple podcast feed. And I said that I don't think it's a fait accompli that he's going to leave. And I, I put it at about 50-50 that he's going to come back. So we're in a bit of a holding pattern there. I, I, we will return to the hot stove next week. I just I felt this week should have been about the celebration of these two players and the awards and, and one last look back at 2019. There is something, however, that I the reason why I was on 77 WABC uh, was about the sign stealing. And the Mets have, have gotten tied into this. And I wanted to quickly, as we wrap up, address it. I don't care what Joel Sherman writes or what people are saying, and over the last day, more has come out with names like former baseball prospectus writer Kevin Goldstein, who's working for the Astros, uh, coming out as he's one of the ringleaders around suggesting that the Astros set up cameras. There's been video out there of old games. Chris Flexen of the Mets is in one where you hear the banging uh, on the garbage cans. Uh, You see some uh, video from the World Series where... Uh, someone on Twitter showed that there's like cameras and wire and garbage cans uh, set up right by the dugout steps uh, when you see a clip of the players coming in after a big win. So, you know, there's a lot there. To pull the Mets into this and Beltron into this, I think Beltron certainly should be questioned. He's you know, part of that team and obviously he's gone on record about his gamesmanship when it comes to stealing signs and maybe picking up pitchers tipping and things like that. But uh, I really don't see how other than Beltron maybe getting a fine, I think that's stretching it, uh, is anywhere near somebody that is going to come out on the high end of the dirt here. This is going to be about management and ownership and front office. And the Astros, things will come out. The Astros will be punished. And uh, somebody may lose their job. And Goldstein might be the one that becomes a sacrificial lamb here. And what's going to happen is these guys who, from these publications like Baseball Prospectus, who all were angling for jobs many, many years ago while they were doing their work, and they got into the insider club. When they get thrown out of the insider club, I think they're going to see how uh, irrelevant uh, they become very quickly. And I think what's funny about all this is that a lot of these guys had the moral high ground for many years, or acted like they had the moral high ground. And when they were faced with when the Astros were faced with some controversy in the media, uh, they kind of were arrogant and dismissive in the same way which you know, many of these same people who were outsiders at one point would have uh, ridiculed a team for doing something like that. And we all know that ever since the Taubman situation, where Taubman had that idiotic situation where he, uh, he taunted those female reporters, and you know what? <laughs> Is it worth it? You know, yeah, they were trying to, at least one of them was trying to bait him. When you walk around a ballpark 
And I'm, all I'm saying is when you want to make a statement, whether you're wearing a ribbon or a shirt about a cause, whether it's something like domestic violence or any kind of cause, which there's nothing wrong with it. But when you're on the job, you really have to be a little bit more neutral because you don't want to bring attention to yourself or a cause while you're on the job. That's always my my take and my opinion. So to me, that's a bait job because you know that you kind of know going into the clubhouse that's going to elicit a reaction. But shame on Taubman for taking the bait. Shame on him for doing that. And ever since that reaction and ever since the Astros were caught uh, basically acting boorish, uh, the media has done a proctology exam on them. And somehow they're trying to drag, or the local media, like Joel Sherman's trying to drag Beltron into it. Beltron, at, at worst, is going to get a fine. Uh, there'll be nothing uh, to that. And like I said on 77WABC, as long as the Mets are transparent and allow Beltron to get interviewed and they don't hide anything, there's there's no reason to get upset at the Mets. I saw some people start in, oh, when they interviewed Beltron, did they ask questions? When you're interviewing a player for a manager's job, or former player for a manager's job, you're asking him about the job. You're not asking him about... His background. I mean, yeah, I know the whole Wally Backman thing. You know, he withheld stuff about his legal background. You know, if you do a background check, if that's part of the process, just like any other individual like you or I, if we got hired by a company, they might hire a company to do a background check to make sure you don't have any, you know, scurrilous behavior in your background that's been recorded. Uh, look, he worked for the Yankees. Um, it, there's just, there's nothing there to that. And what's funny is if this really wasn't, a media hatchet job or a punishment for the Astros. This would have came out years ago. This is two years old, some of this stuff. So where was the media all this time? All of a sudden now, uh, Mike Fires is coming out? No, they're starting to look into the organization because of what happened with Taubman during the World Series. They want to start smearing the organization and bring them down. Maybe they deserve it. I mean, if you've done the things that they've done and they've left emails out there and acted a certain way in front of reporters and then lied about it, you deserve whatever comes at you. But what's phony about it is that it takes these things out in the open and the media getting assaulted, so to speak, proverbially, for them to act and them to go after this team. Because six weeks ago, the Astros were the darlings of the sport. And then the Taubman thing happens and, and all this stuff goes down the, uh, downhill. And, and look, Taubman's an idiot. He was baited and he fell for the bait. And all I, like I said on Twitter, there's going to be a lot of people covering teams and some of them are in this local market that are going to be looking, just like with this Beltron thing, to try to make it about everything but the game. And you have to be smart enough to mind your P's and Q's. you got to be smart enough to stay away from those individuals. And you got to be smart enough when they come and try to talk to you or whatever work they do. Don't take their bait because that's what they're looking for to make a name. They're not really looking to write about sports. They're looking to make a name for themselves and potentially push an, uh, an agenda that t- tends to be progressive and, 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 and anti-whatever-establishment that has been... Uh, put forth for many, many years. So I think that that's something to really look at. And really what it ties into is the Mets can't take the bait with this Beltron stuff. There's nothing there. Let him do his interview. You know, if he participated in uh, something with the team using cameras, he's not the guy you're going to go after. He's not the guy that's going to get suspended. Now, if A.J. Hinch, and and we talked about A.J. Hinch potentially have been a candidate for the Mets job, was the Mets manager now, then you might have had something. And boy, I bet you A.J. Hinch wishes the Astros would have let him out of his contract to get the hell out of there because I think things are going to get tougher and tougher and tougher for him there in Houston. So much to do about nothing. And the real story with this signing thing, uh, this whole sign gate, is A, baseball is a bunch of dopes for not reacting to it. 
Because with all the technology out there, you had to expect something like this to happen. And number two, the media proves they're phony again. You know why they're phony? Because the only reason they're doing this to the Astros is because the Astros insulted them during the World Series and didn't play ball with them and and did not behave initially when they demanded certain things to happen and punishments to happen. The Astros told the media, I make the decisions, you don't. And they, they forced them and they bullied them into a decision during the World Series, and now they're going to bully them into being smeared for uh, probably these guys the rest of their careers. And this team, the Astros, will never be looked at the same. So uh, anyway, that's that's where there's that's where there's uh, that's all there is to that. And vacating championships and the outrage by other organizations. You know what? Trust me, there are other teams out there doing this. And and I'll leave you with this: when I mentioned during the Dodgers series, the four game series on Twitter, I got laughed at for basically insinuating the Dodgers may have been doing something with stealing signs that sounds an awful lot like what the Astros have been doing for two years. And people thought I was being a conspiracy theorist. Maybe I know a little bit more uh, than, uh, than the average uh, individual. Maybe you got to sometimes look at things with some cynicism and some street sense. And, uh, and that's all I have to say about the subject, because I probably already have gotten myself in enough trouble with uh, how I ended this show. But anyway, that's my take. Hope everybody enjoyed the show. I want to thank Greg Prince for joining me. You can check him out at Faith and Fear and Flushing at Greg underscore Prince. Of course, the best way to listen to this podcast is Apple Podcasts. Please review it. Let me know what you think about it. You can check me out at Mike Silva Media on Twitter and send me an email, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. No G, Mike Silva at TalkingMetsPodcast.com. I'm your host, Mike Silva. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. Be well. We'll be back with another Talking Mets podcast next week. Take care, everybody. Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Remember to use code OLDLINE and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't 
win your first bet. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Maryland only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with MGM National Harbor. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. 